Welcome back to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Louis Reedwood. For today's episode, we'll be discussing a new exhibit at the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto. This exhibit is titled Fragments of Epic Memory. It opened on September 1st of this year, and it'll remain open until February 21st, 2022. Fragments of Epic Memory forefronts the history of the Caribbean and the Caribbean diaspora from emancipation from slavery in the mid-19th century to today. The exhibit features and often juxtaposes both archival photos from the region from the mid-19th through the mid-20th century and more recent artwork by Caribbean artists. In doing so, the exhibit explores historical themes that include emancipation, colonialism, and Caribbean identity. As an art exhibition in an art gallery, Fragments of Epic Memory offers not only lessons in Caribbean history, but also ways of discussing that history that are often quite different from what one would find in a traditional historical museum. To discuss this exhibit with me, I'm joined by Carly Manners. Carly is a PhD student at the University of Toronto and an expert in Caribbean history. Her research focuses on Afro-Caribbean religion and material culture. She also worked as a research and writing consultant on the exhibit, offering us a unique insight into its development. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. I'm very excited to welcome our guest for today's episode, my friend and colleague from my own PhD program, Carly Manners. Carly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Carly, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and and what your your research is all about? Yeah, uh, I'm Carly Manners. I'm a third year PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Toronto. My research is focused on the Caribbean and the Atlantic world. I'm particularly interested in like Afro-Atlantic religions and spiritual practices and material culture, like especially in the 19th and the 20th centuries when like ritual objects gain significant interest from anthropologists and ethnographers, and they start to enter into museum spaces in like North America and Europe. That's really interesting. Really cool stuff, and really appropriate for our topic today. <laughs> obviously. So today we're talking about the exhibit Fragments of Epic Memory at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario here in Toronto. This is an exhibit that you worked on. So for those who haven't visited this exhibit or haven't heard much about it, could you briefly describe the exhibit and also tell us a little bit about what your role in the exhibit was? Yeah, absolutely. Fragments of Epic Memory is an exhibition, as you said, at the Art Gallery of Ontario. It's curated by the incredible Dr. Julie Crooks, who is now head of Global Arts of Africa and the Diaspora at the AGO, which is a brand new department. Fragments is a the first show coming out of this department, so that's oh, really wow. exciting. The show is an exploration, really, into the history, the culture, and the multiple expressions of the Caribbean and its diaspora. The title actually comes from the St. Lucian poet Derek Walcott's 1992 Nobel Prize speech, Antilles Fragments of Epic Memory. And in it, he uses like this metaphor of a broken vase to speak about the diasporic identities of the Caribbean. And in taking this as inspiration, this exhibition features about 200 of historical photographs from the Montgomery Collection of Caribbean Photographs, which is newly acquired by the AGO in about 2019 and actually features about 3,000 photos. 
So the selection process uh, to feature the show is quite difficult. Mm-hmm. But as well, we have selected works from modern and contemporary artists from across the Caribbean and its wider diaspora. So my role in this exhibition was as a research and writing consultant. It was actually, I'm pretty sure my knowledge of the Derek Walcott speech, Fragments of Epic Memory, that got me onto the job through reading him in comps. So comps oh, works. Yeah. <laughs> it was incredibly helpful. There you go. Comps was actually useful for something. <laughs> exactly. It got me a whole job. <laughs> I worked closely with the curator, Julie Crooks, and the assistant curator, Alexander Gooding, and the editing team to follow this curatorial vision and write all of the text copy for the show, which this includes like the title wall, the extended labels, the section panels, and as well as I did a lot of editing and research review for the publication, which will be coming out in late November. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, so I was pretty explicitly hired as a historian to try and be as academically rigorous as possible. It was something that Julie was really interested in. She said that we can, we can funnel the academic language into a more arts-friendly speak, but it was incredibly important that we got the history of the region, the culture of the region, right. So that was how I kind of fit into this incredibly big AGO team. Very cool. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And, and nice to see historians getting jobs as historians as well. <laughs> so for those who haven't visited the exhibit, I guess trying to like describe like the, the layout a little bit, there's two large halls and... In each of these halls, there's sort of middle sections that have, are mostly historical photographs sort of in the, in the center. And then along the walls on the outside are more of the, the contemporary art pieces. And then there are also sort of beyond these halls or, or in between them, some rooms that are playing like short films and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a combination, yeah, a combination of all of those. So I guess also we might mention that I think the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the time period being focused on is largely like the mid-19th to the mid-20th century, roughly. As a historian, what are some of the most important historical themes about the Caribbean and Caribbean diaspora in this exhibit? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Montgomery photos really range from 1840 to 1940, <clears throat> and a lot of the modern contemporary artists represent the 20th and 21st century. Oh, right. My so okay. those end up working uh, quite well together. But the themes that kind of continuously arose from the modern contemporary works as well as the historical photographs were first freedom and emancipation. Mm-hmm. Actually, the first photo that you see, the largest photo as you enter towards the title wall, is a huge photo called Emancipation Day, in which all of the people being represented are kind of turning towards the camera. And it looks like some type of celebration. And the way they kind of look at you as a viewer and, and the sheer size of this photo on the wall really like invites you into that space. So just from starting at that point and as well thinking about how the show really begins its dialogue very shortly after slavery's legal end in the Caribbean, emancipation is a theme that I really could never look away from. Mm-hmm. The 
historical photos document life in the Caribbean in this very rapidly changing climate. And it provokes viewers to question its realities of the post-emancipation period. And especially in the Caribbean, it makes us think what freedom really looked like. While the 20th century and 21st century artists really get to express their own re-articulations of freedom, what that looks like for them, for, and especially for themselves if they are living in the diaspora. Right. But I'd say like another theme that was really unshakable for me in these months of writing and researching was self-fashioning. So much of the Caribbean is defined by outsiders and defined by its kind of continual absence. Ironically, the Caribbean is often thought of as this place without a true history, without an independent culture, and by this absence of modernity and civilization. So what we really wanted to underscore was the Caribbean not just as like this vacation destination that was constructed in the 20th century, rather like we wanted to like highlight the Caribbean and Caribbean people as they see it in this very like self-determined and continuously self-fashioned Caribbean and diasporic identity that's rich, it's diverse and incredibly complex. Right, that all makes sense to me. And I think that also it, those themes really come through for me in the exhibit as well when I when I saw it. I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about those themes later on. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk a little bit about the idea of like a historical art exhibit first. So obviously this is a this is an exhibit at the Art Gallery of Ontario. It's not at an explicitly sort of historical museum, although the exhibit is obviously historical. What do you think is is different about putting on a historical exhibit at an, at an art gallery versus putting it on at a, a more explicitly historical museum, like for example, the, the Royal Ontario Museum or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the, maybe the strengths and the challenges of communicating history in this type of space are? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. It's honestly something that I wrestled with a lot. I did a postgrad in museum and gallery studies, and then I did a lot of work primarily in collections and conservation in museums. I saw myself as being best suited for a more historical museum setting. So working with AGO was a challenge uh, in a lot of ways, but doing this type of work in an art gallery, well, it was a challenge. Like, For one, I'm not an art historian. I haven't really engaged in fine art in any significant way outside of like conservation, like cleaning an art piece, reframing it and putting it back. So I began to write this text uh, for the show. It came off as like too didactic, a little bit too academic, mm. and very much as a historian. I remember that was one of the first kind of feedbacks I got from my early drafts was, you definitely write like a historian. But thankfully, Julie Crooks is an excellent mentor and really helped me like soften that tone. And most of the time gave me the language that I needed to talk about art from a fine art perspective in language I was, I didn't really think about in trying to communicate uh, these historical narratives, but it had to be a constant negotiation with the writing. Mm -hmm. But however, even like communi communicating the content was a challenge. In this type of space, I'm not writing to a purely academic audience or ones that think as a historian necessarily would. 
So while some of the details were incredibly important to me, and I thought, of course, this is going to be a hill that I die on, and I kind of at first considered word limits to be a little bit arbitrary, they don't work like that in an art gallery and not at an institution of this size. So I had to get really comfortable being edited and knowing the times in which I needed to also trust myself and push against some of those limitations to do justice to the work and to the context. But of course, like at the same time, I was pleasantly surprised to see that the work an art installation does on its own that a museum necessarily can't. Like I learned that not everything needs narrative um, and needs this deep context. We could just kind of like let the art that was on the wall speak and importantly let the Caribbean artists themselves speak through their work without like my intermediary prose. And at times that's enough. And I think that's what really mattered at the end. Like some of the most moving works in the show, I didn't actually have to write a single word for. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I, yeah, I think I have no fine art background at all. And so I, this is my like historian, but otherwise like layman interpretation <laughs> of it. But it does seem definitely like, you know, like a, like a historical museum almost like tells you what you should be interpreting something as, right? Like often you'll see an artifact or, a, or something behind a display case and there'll be like a pretty lengthy yeah. explanation of what, what you're looking at and like why it's interesting or significant or, or what have you. And art galleries don't do that nearly as much usually. I guess this is what you're saying about like um, <laughs> letting, the, letting the artists speak for themselves. And so I think it, it you're, you know, you have to communicate much more through like, themes than like specific details in a way yeah yeah absolutely and i would say like even this show itself was a learning process i think for the institution because hmm. we still did a little bit more of didactic writing than you would usually see in other shows because the stakes are really high we don't often get to see a lot of these caribbean artists who are brilliant getting a stage to show their work something like this big and the context is pretty significant we are kind of pushing against what most people think of when you think of the Caribbean so we definitely knew that we had to put in a lot of that historical content but do so in a way that is still accessible to everyone and is still staying true to what an art gallery does Right, right. So when, when the museum sort of expects you to use more limited amounts of, of text, certainly there, there obviously is some, some text, but perhaps you know, like with these word limits or that sort of thing, what are the other ways that you, you seek to like impart a message about history? I mean, I, I don't know much, as I said, much about fine art. So like, are things like the layout of the galleries an important consideration or like what what are you um what are you thinking about in in that sense yeah absolutely i didn't even realize the degree to which curation is really embedded into every single thing that you see in the show whether you pick up on it or not even down to the colors that we painted the gallery with certainly the layout but the archways the rounded archways on the walls that are painted and there's a wall built going into the video called Three Kings Weep 
that Julie came up with because of the standard sugar mills. The entrance oh. to them are rounded in a very like specific way. Hmm. So she's taking from that architecture and putting it into that space quite literally. So there's so many symbolic ways to kind of get this narrative across and to like feel it in that space. But certainly in an art gallery, you don't get as much text as you would in a historical museum. Like ideally art should be able to speak for itself and let the viewer kind of interpret that meaning and you want to give space for that to happen. The more text you put on the wall, the more people are going to physically go up to it and read it and then try and see things the way you are presenting it to them. Right. So at times it's incredibly important. We're making sure that they are getting the narrative that we need or they're getting more context about the artists themselves. But sometimes it was best to just kind of let everyone feel the weight of the piece as they were standing in front of it. And I mean, we were actually given like a tentative limit for the amount of extended labels for the individual artworks. So I think, oh, I should know this. I think they told us maybe 15, which is really not a lot. But from there, the curator and I sat down and we marked out which uh, modern contemporary works we thought ought to have a more fuller explanation of either the work itself or the artist. And that was difficult. All of the works are incredible and all of these artists are so fascinating. But in the end, we really tried to ensure that the works that got an extended label also helped to shape the narrative of the show more broadly. Hmm. But I think like in general, the visuality of the Montgomery collection photos and the more modern works have an incredibly powerful impact. Um, and one that I didn't see until I was kind of like in the thick of it and writing. But like whether it's a photo or sometimes we have audioscapes, sculpture and video, the works in the show kind of communicate the vibrancy of the region. And this visuality especially was important to me. I think we're in a time in which we're rather accustomed to seeing black people being portrayed in relationship to violence and brutality, whether that's on social media or the news. And being able to celebrate blackness in a way that isn't foundationally concerned with violence is really special. And I think the art in the show really helps communicate that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think that, is, that stands out, especially in the, the contemporary representations. That's also really interesting to me that there was like a quota of, <laughs> of more extensive panels that you were given. I don't know. I didn't know that's how these sorts of things work. That's interesting. Okay, so you, you were talking about both the, the photographs and the, the contemporary art pieces there, and I want to talk about the, the juxtaposition between those a little bit. They're, as I mentioned earlier, not physically in the same spaces in the exhibit. And in some ways, I think very contrasting, maybe in some ways, not always contrasting, but, but often are. Can you talk a little bit about why it was important for the exhibit to have both of these types of media. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a very like intentional arrangement in the galleries with having the historical photos in table cases kind of in the center of the two major galleries, the two largest galleries, and then the modern contemporary works around the walls. And then as you go through the hallways, there's individual galleries for the videos, sculpture, audioscapes as well. But the modern contemporary works 
do a lot of work themselves. They're like reimagining kind of the history that we see that are being depicted in the photos that you're also seeing in those spaces. And they're also reclaiming it. And very quickly uh, after I was hired, Julie also made sure that I was very much aware that this was serving as a counterpoint. But there's like still a dialogue. It's not just a simple kind of binary of a colonial gaze and this modern reclamation, but a constant kind of back and forth of themes of race and migration and labor, diaspora, self-fashioning, emancipation, geography, and all of these things that are coming together in a really interesting way. And I realized that a part of Julie Crooks' curatorial vision was that you can't necessarily just have these historical photos that are so deeply embedded in a very specific colonial gaze without having the Caribbean people themselves kind of answer to that. Right. And that was like the best and most respectful way to talk about these histories. Right. That makes sense to me. Yeah, my understanding, which is largely just like what I think is written on the, the panel when you enter the exhibit. <laughs> so I'm not like, <laughs> I'm not taking credit for this interpretation, but the idea that the historical photographs often reflect, as you mentioned, this colonial gaze in which, on the Caribbean and it, its people, in which the inhabitants, especially who are often racialized or, or marginalized people, often didn't control the terms of their representation, right? And so the, the contemporary artwork is in part intended to offer a, an opportunity to speak to that, as you said. So what do we, what's meant by the colonial gaze? For, for listeners who maybe aren't historians and aren't familiar with that term, what does that mean? And why is it important for marginalized people to, to be able to represent themselves or control the terms of their representation? Yeah, that's a big, that's like a It's a heavy question. question. Yeah. What we mean by this is like the ways in which these colonial agendas determines colonial realities by suppressing or at times like dehumanizing the subjects to maintain and legitimate power in these regions. So what this tends to look like is a separation of colonial powers and their kind of constructed others, which are the subjects. So the colonial gaze had so many mediums in the Atlantic world. And I mean, in researching, I think I took a much deeper dive than was ever intended. But it's really fascinating because it's constantly present. It doesn't just start with photography, but it begins as early as first explorations of the Caribbean by Europeans with travel narratives, with maps, with botanical expeditions. And then finally, the 19th century photography became this primary medium in the Caribbean. And it's a way for like the metropoles to visualize the colonies for themselves. Mm. So it's really important, I think, for, for marginalized people and Caribbean people in this case to control the terms of their own representation because for hundreds of years, they've been both hyper visible yet obscured. Mm. And this is kind of something that I also kept coming back to with the works and the research that I did to kind of inform them, is that their bodies are always shown for this like exoticism or in relation to colonial labor. 
but the nuances of their selfhood, their culture, dreams, and futures are kind of always obscured from popular view. They're kind of rendered inconsequential. So with this show, we kind of hope to represent this dialogue. And I think the best feeling was after the first opening, a woman from the Caribbean came up to me and she spoke so passionately about how she finally felt seen and like honored in the art in a way that she had never really felt before and certainly not in these types of arts and culture institutions. Hmm. And that makes everything that makes everything worth it. I mean, like for my own father, him seeing his hometown of Charlestown, Nevis, represented was like pretty awe-inspiring for him. And it was just like photos of the landscape and things that he recalled from being a child. So that's really cool because its show is very much a starting point. It isn't the complete dialogue. It's not the end of the sentence. So it's cool to imagine how much more we can do. Yeah, definitely. That was a really, that was a good answer to like a very <laughs> tough question. I feel like everybody I have on this podcast these days, I always ask them like one really hard, like, what is progress? And why, <laughs> why is, why do historians feel and like, and, and so, so you've, uh, you've passed the, the hard question test. Okay, um, good, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so if these photographs were often essentially in service of, how colonizers wanted the, to see the Caribbean mm-hmm. rather than how people in the Caribbean actually experienced their lives and the, the Caribbean itself. If these photos are like, you know, they're, they're problematic. This is like a cheeky question, but like, why even use them then? Like, why mm-hmm. not just center the contemporary art? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. The historical photos, like, so they show like a lot of landscapes, laboring people, studio portraits. And like after the abolition of slavery, there was this increased interest from colonizing countries to construct the Caribbean as this kind of picturesque paradise. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, they sought to dispel the metropolitan fears of this cannibal, uncivilized people of the Caribbean that had been prevailing for so long during enslavement. But still, in this process, they're still underscoring the racial and ethnic like exoticism. So they promoted the Caribbean as this place for tourists to enjoy, but are still also furthering these like hundreds of years of Western consumption of the region. But for me, like they still support the myth that the Caribbean is like available for this type of constant extraction of natural resources with the photos of like crop cultivation, mining, sugar processing, and again, like continuing to show black and brown bodies serving primarily in relationship to labor. Mm-hmm. And it's important to show because the Montgomery collection in its entirety is so vast. It is at this really crucial time in which the Caribbean region in all of its nations and countries are changing so rapidly. And as a historian, there's so much value in these photos, but of course, presenting them and the impact that they have in knowing these kind of histories and how they were constructed is difficult. So the curatorial choice to include the more modern contemporary artists, the Caribbean people themselves, to kind of re-articulate an answer to these, I think helps that at the same time, but 
it doesn't kind of wash away the historical legacies that they themselves are responding to. Right. That makes sense. And I think some of that meaning of like of what the contemporary art pieces mean would not make as much sense without being able to yeah clearly establish that context. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the themes, the historical themes that are visible in the more re- the contemporary art pieces and in what ways can these challenge the colonial gaze representations in the in the photographs? Actually, one of my favorite ways the art challenges this is through abstraction, which is honestly a word that I did not know very well in relationship to art before I started this job. But there's there's so many works that actually play with this, and especially this concept of opacity, that which is not easily revealed. And I'm thinking specifically of Paul Anthony Smith's like picotage works in the show, and it's usually women in carnival, and they're being kind of obscured through this process where in the photo he uses a tool to literally pick up the, like, the emulsion of the print. And it's, it's really cool because from far away it just kind of looks like something overlaid over a photo, and then you get close up and you see all these intricate textures. But there's something really captivating about these artists using these methods to conceal elements of their work and their subjects. Like it's like reclaiming their right to opacity, controlling what gets to be seen after so many hundreds of years of hypervisibility. Hmm. And we kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about that in the show, but there was no way to really access it in a way that wasn't like almost too academic. Right. So we had to kind of soften it, it didn't become the the basis of one of the section panels, but we still got it in there and that was yeah. that was really cool. But also, I think a lot about the artist Laisho Johnson's work, and in it, it's a sweet sugar cane, male and female figure, and there's a painting of sugar cane, and then these two kind of like anime-esque figures holding onto the sugar cane and dancing, and takes from dance hall culture, and it's a little bit cheeky, quite literally, and he's also kind of calling back to the resource extraction and the significance of the plantation and sugar cultivation in Jamaica and how that's so embedded in the culture, but also this kind of reclamation of that of that labor. Yeah, I, I remember both of those pieces. And those are a couple of really good examples of like the, the sort of like historical value uh, or her historical interpretive value of, of these contemporary art pieces. Yeah, I, I like both of those. I think that second one, in like that, sorry, I don't remember the name of it. The Sweet Sugar Cane. Sweet Sugar Cane highlights what you said earlier about celebrating like the Caribbean life outside of oppression. You know, there's people who experience joy who live in the Caribbean. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have, yeah, do you have a favorite art piece or photo or something like that, by the way, from the exhibit? Um... Yes. Oh, see, that is, that's really difficult. But like one of my favorite things about this exhibit is actually the Moko Jumbi. It's a sculpture by artist Zach Obe. And the Moko Jumbi stands like 20 feet tall in Walker Court, actually. Before you even get upstairs to the gallery, it's the first thing that you, you see when you enter the Art Gallery of Ontario. And I think it's like the perfect thing to be greeted with as you're coming in. And I spent a lot of time writing and rewriting the extended label 
for this piece before I actually got to see the finished work. It's a commissioned piece, actually. And he's done, I think, two for the British Museum. So we kind of went off those and designs that he had sent us, but then I just kind of did this deep dive into the meaning of Mokojumbi in the Caribbean folklore and its modern presence in carnivals across the diaspora. And the Mokojumbi is actually believed to be this tall walking protective spirit that followed enslaved people from Africa to the New World for protection. Now these like really tall stilt dancers dressed as Mokojumbis uh, in the, all this like elegant finery and carnival, very colorful dress to kind of pay homage to this. And Zach Ove's sculptures really embrace this so beautifully and the details in it are immaculate. I am so obsessed with it. I have about 300 photos of it on my phone. But wow. <laughs> like for him, this, this Mokojumbi is about walking tall towards a brighter future. And honestly, I think that's like the perfect way to bookend the show. And yeah, if anyone's going to see it, I'd say like spend extra time looking at the Mokojumbi and all of the details in the sculpture are, are pretty perfect. Very cool. You said this is, this is like outside of, this is outside the main exhibit, right? Yeah, it's on like the main floor. Yeah, I think maybe I missed it, unfortunately. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think I just, I, I maybe walked right past it. Oh. I'll, I'll send you some photos. Okay, cool, yeah. But that sounds really cool. So, shifting gears a little bit, the exhibit is, uh, and sort of like what we talked about earlier, where maybe an art exhibit is less didactic than a traditional history exhibit, this exhibit is is largely non-linear in terms of how it talks about historical themes. You know, the the works in the exhibit are obviously dated, and the date is often significant, but like they aren't presented in chronological order necessarily. And there, there's not a lot of discussion in the exhibit about specific events. Like obviously, the exhibit is specifically a, a post-emancipation exhibit, so emancipation is like a framing event. And there's a little bit of discussion about one or two other events. Like I think there, there's some discussion about turn of the century indentured laborers from, from China and India, which is, I guess that's not like a specific event, but like, so, it's sort of a, like a grounding temporal thing. But beyond, you know, a couple of these sorts of things, there's not really a lot of time-based things that like ground a, a narrative that you would expect in a history exhibit. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of nonlinear approach to talking about historical themes? Yeah, the show is presented more thematically than chronologically, as you saw. I mean, like, in a way, the modern contemporary artist inclusion, the show kind of presents this historical continuity from the historical photographs. Right. But chronology wasn't something that we were necessarily, like, primarily concerned with. The historical events mentioned, like, are done so to orient the, vi the viewers in a thematic expression more so. So like emancipation at the start gives context to the Caribbean world that we dive into with the photos and the importance of these modern artists. The Chinese and Indian indentured migration in the 19th century represents this vibrancy of Caribbean culture and the many diasporic identities in the region. And then later we have Jeanette Eller's work, Black Bullets, 
in which we discuss the Haitian Revolution to kind of anchor these expressions of self-representation and rootedness. And in that section as well, we actually are able to discuss indigeneity and the Garifuna people. So we also discuss the more modern politics of the Windrush generation and scandal in England and its effect on Caribbean descended black folks in Britain. But the strength of like a non-blatantly linear approach is that the chronology of the region is really complex. Like chronologies in general would be a little bit too narrow to cover the vast expressions and topics that we actually needed to cover. Right. Especially thinking geographically, the Caribbean is such a vast place. Mm-hmm. There's so many countries and nations with such different chronological histories of emancipation and independence and so on, we'd lose a lot in that approach. I did try in very early drafts to kind of anchor in more dates and events, but in doing so, it revealed like, oh, then I was talking a little bit too much about the Anglo-Caribbean. Like, of course, this date, this event is very significant in Jamaica and Barbados, but this doesn't work in the same way. Emancipation and freedom isn't felt nearly in the same way in Haiti. And because of those choices, we had to be quite careful. We didn't want anything to be left out. So the nonlinear approach and more thematic approach, I think, gave us a lot more freedom in that regard. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I do. I think that that makes a lot of sense where, you know, sometimes in like a history class or or an exhibit or whatever, a book, you know, you can get so like bogged down in the very specific details that it's easy to lose sight of what the like overall lesson or meaning is supposed to be, right? Like I, I think of this in terms of, well, I, yeah, I don't want to like move away too much from the Caribbean example, but like sometimes because mm-hmm. I specialize in U.S. history, Sometimes people want to, like, teach a lot about, like, what's happening in, like, every state or something like that. <laughs> and it becomes easy to lose sight of, of a bigger trend, essentially. And I think that it sounds like that's kind of the same, same thing here, right? Where it would, be, it would have been tempting to, as a historian, to put in lots of dates and lots of, like, sort of nationally specific details that might make it harder to focus on some of the, some of the bigger picture stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the same time, it was also important that we, in like the table case on the historical photos, did a lot of research trying to name specific places. Mm. Because Caribbean people often don't get to see where they're from being represented. Mm, right. So we wanted people to be able to go up to those cases and see that we are talking about Trinidad. We're talking about Charlestown Nevis. These really what would seem quite small to everyone else is incredibly important to the Caribbean folks who are from there. But mm-hmm. in the broader narratives, it got, it got quite difficult. I had to be very careful with wording. And sometimes I think it would have even come off as almost a little bit awkward in talking about post-emancipation, for example, something I was really stuck on. Because what does that really look like if we are talking about the entire Caribbean archipelago because it's different in 
the British Caribbean than in the French, and even within the French Caribbean, and certainly incredibly different when we talk about the Spanish Caribbean. And then how do we accurately represent the experiences of enslaved people in Cuba, where this comes significantly later? Right. Those are all really interesting points. And I, t- I totally take the point as well about the, specific, the, the like, importance of being specific. Not even, I mean, you mentioned for, for people from the Caribbean, right? But I also think there's a, an important lesson for people who are not from the Caribbean, where a lot of people in, I, I'm going to say like a lot of Canadians, but I think this is, this is broader than just Canadians. I think a lot of Canadians know a lot of geography about like Canada, the US and Europe. Yes. <laughs> and, and not much about other places. And I think that there's a lesson in, in just in doing that, like being very specific about the, the places that are being depicted, about saying like, yes, specific places really exist here, essentially, like, which sounds like a, it's like a trite way of saying my point, but like, I'm not just going to write like, it's the Caribbean. There are specific places here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even in doing that, it allowed us to delve a lot deeper into themes because Mm. being able to express through the contemporary artists who were exploring their own racial identities, being being African descended and Chinese and Cuban, and also tying that to the migration of uh, laborers from China to Cuba and like what does that mean and then how are we also seeing this play out for our modern contemporary artists is really cool and I think being able to like name those specific places and give a nod to some of the events but not everything allowed us to do that. Right, that makes sense. Okay, I always ask this question. This is a question <laughs> that I ask all my guests. So. What is your your favorite thing about this exhibit? And also, if there's something, if you could change one thing about the exhibit, if you were in charge of the exhibit and the AGO would let you change one thing, uh, what would it be? Okay. I mean, we're doing this at a very good time because the show opened at the beginning of September and I'm just starting to unravel myself. But before, I think I... (laughs) Like, I was so immersed in this for so many months that I fixated on every single detail. From, like, every item in the table case down to, like, every punctuation mark. But I've actually gotten to take some steps back and breathe and enjoy it. And I was really hung up on some of the text that was left on the cutting room floor that was so important to me as a historian of the Caribbean that I'm starting to let go of now, I think, if I could change one thing, it might be like a couple of sentences in the section panels that was very historically rooted. Is there like a specific thing you really wanted to say that, that didn't get said or? Uh, I can't really recall because I think that's how much I've like started to let it go. And like, okay. I promise this isn't uh, a cop out, but there isn't really <laughs> anything big that I can think about changing. Okay. Uh, like about the show. The process, maybe. I think a show of this size in a global pandemic and with a new department was not easy. Hmm. And like I I have no notes really. The curator, Julie Crooks, always told me that at the center of curation is care. 
and that care that went into this show from her and the other incredible women who made up our core team really comes through. And like as a black woman myself, being mentored at the same time through the show by another black woman was like such an incredible experience. So that is definitely one of my favorite parts about this is not only did I get to be a historian kind of outside of the academy as I envisioned it, but at the same time, I got to learn so much about what it's like to work in such a big institution and in an art gallery specifically in a way that I, I didn't think I would ever really get any type of experience like that. So yeah, I would also say the reactions from Caribbean folks in Toronto that I've seen like across social media or that have like come in through responses like through the AGO directly have been another one of like the shining moments of this experience that made like, you know, every extensively edited response that came back that sometimes I was frustrated with, it made everything kind of get put into perspective and it made everything really worth it for me. That's really cool. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool experience and I'm glad that you were brought in for it both because it sounds like it was nice for you, but also because <laughs> you did a great job. The exhibit is is really excellent. Like I really, I really enjoyed visiting it, and yeah, it's just like really impressive. Like a, as a as a visitor, you can tell. Like, I mean, I would expect no less from like the AGO, <laughs> but like there was a ton of care and and work put into it. Yeah, and it it was a, a very long process. Admittedly, I was brought in like a year and a half into it already in motion. So I had to play quite a bit of catch up. I got started in end of April, I believe. Okay, and then the exhibit opened in September. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a, like a lot a lot of planning. Like it's like 2 years, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I applied for a research assistantship um with this collection and I had an interview in early March 2019, and it went really well, and I got to meet Julie Crooks, who was already, I'm such a big fan of her, her curatorial work, and I was shortlisted, but I didn't actually end up getting that job. And when she called to basically tell me I didn't get this job, she was so incredibly kind and said that she thinks I would be a great addition to the team when they get closer to exhibition. And I just kind of kept that in my back pocket. And in March of this year, I just kind of cold emailed her and said like, hi, I'm still here. This is my resume, this is my CV. I had an interview. Uh, I think I could be of some help. And I didn't know what that would look like, but I just kind of shot my shot and it worked out so much better than I could have imagined. That's cool. I really, I respect the like, come back and be like, Hey, did you, you want to hire me still? I did this, I, this is like, this is very off topic now, but I once did a job interview at, this was at like, um, like a library and archive that was working on a museum exhibit, mm -hmm. like an online museum exhibit it was going to be the main job. And I thought the interview went well and I didn't hear from them for like a couple of weeks afterward. And so I, I just, I emailed them and I was like, Hey, just wondering, like, did I, did I get the job or, and, and then they called me back and they were like, uh, yeah, you're hired. And I was like, well, this work? <laughs> Weeks later? Yeah. I was like, honestly, I, 
I like looking back on it. I'm like, I can't believe I did that, and it worked. Like, this... yeah, the saying "the worst they can say is no" really worked out in both of these cases. And I mean, it's kind of like that thing that everyone jokes about, how everyone's parents say you can just like walk into somewhere and say, "Here's my resume. Can I have a job?" And we're like, that doesn't work like that anymore. It did in this case. Um, I'd tell everyone to like just go for it. But yeah, I think I also got pretty lucky and it was really good timing that I had just read fragments of epic memory and in my first kind of conversation with Julie before I was hired she was telling me about her vision for the show and didn't mention the name of the show or anything and I just said oh you might want to read fragments of epic memory by Derek Walcott I think it's kind of what you're getting at here and I think it's kind of would be really helpful and it's coming through really well and she laughed and said well guess what the name of the show is and I was like thank you Professor Melanie Newton for making me read this two weeks ago there you go I like that that's a really good story yeah cool awesome is there anything else you wanted to, to mention about the exhibit before we wrap up um, just if anyone in Toronto would like to see it, it is open until February, so you have lots of time, and definitely spend some time in Walker Court looking at the Moko Jumbi. He is incredible. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and talking to us about this exhibit, Fragments of Epic Memory. Thank you so much for having me. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening, and a big thank you to Carly for joining me on the show. Off-Campus History is on all the major podcast apps, so get it wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or tell someone about the show. It really helps me to grow the audience. Also, I post some pictures related to each episode on Facebook and Instagram, so if you'd like to see those, be sure to follow the show there. If you're a fellow historian who's interested in being a future guest, shoot me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com, and I'd love to hear other people's comments on the show as well if you want to send me an email. Artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia, and music was made by Nella Ruiz. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more off-campus history. Yeah.